Let's talk some Plato politics on this episode of Pushback. If you're concerned about the direction our culture is heading, then maybe it's time to push back. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pushback. I'm Dr. Johnny, and when I say Plato politics, I'm not talking about Plato, like the soft, squishy, um, doughy substance that you can create things out of. I'm talking about Plato, like the philosopher. And uh, I want to get into a little bit of some of the things that he said um, thousands of years ago, which are eerily relevant to our culture today. <laughs> Before I get into that, I just want to remind everybody to go to uh, gofam.org. Uh, that's the ministry that my wife and I lead uh, regarding family, because as family goes, so goes the culture. And uh, there are great resources on that website. And if you've never checked that out, I encourage you to go there. We have some upcoming events that we are speaking at. We host several marriage uh, classes, courses, and retreats throughout the year. And we've been invited to different places. My wife and I are speaking at the Northwoods Conference uh, in uh, just over the border in Wisconsin. Uh, this is that's taking place at the end of March. So I encourage you to check that information out. We're going to be talking about identity, uh, perhaps the most important conversation that we can be having, no matter what your age is, no matter what your position in life, no matter what uh, your um, uh, a situation that you're going through or problems that you're having, whether it be in relationships, marriage, job, uh, whatever. It's all about identity. And you've heard that so many times here on this podcast. So I want you to check out that conference as well and invite you to participate. So would you please go there? Um, also, the website for this podcast is pushbackculture.org. It's a great place to connect to these podcasts, to tell other people to look into the podcast. It gives descriptions about each episode. It also gives you a place to respond, which I, I see as so valuable because I want to hear your feedback, even if you disagree with me. That's really the premise of this podcast is to connect to people and begin conversation about these important everyday topics, which I would argue sometimes the kingdom of heaven and the church today has sort of buried their head in the sand and has refused to talk about it. They're angry about it, uh, about issues that are happening in our culture, but perhaps don't feel like they have the ability to converse or even want to or just wait until Jesus comes back. You know, we are placed here on this earth because we have a job to do as his ambassadors of heaven. And I take that super seriously, and I hope you do as well. And so that's what this podcast is all about. So those are a couple websites uh, and a couple um, uh, areas of resource for you. There are great resources that uh, that I have written and family have, have written regarding family. And, and uh, I encourage you to connect with those as well. The title of this podcast is called Plato Politics. I came across a a, um, a passage from Plato. Now, Plato, 
uh, was alive, uh, what is it, 428 to 347 BC. <laughs> so just a few, few thousand years ago. Uh, and he's one of the most important figures of the ancient Greek world and the entire history of Western thought. Now, I'm not here to say that I am a Plato guy or or uh, say that I've studied all of his work or feel like it lines up completely with the Bible. However, he, I did come across a passage that he wrote which was sobering and somewhat eerie um, as far as the times that we live. So let me just read it, and then you can kind of make the judgment on how this applies maybe today. So this is uh, some excerpts of what he wrote. The very rich come under attack as inequality becomes increasingly intolerable. Patriarchy is also dismantled. We almost forget to mention the extent of the law of equality and of freedom in the relations of women with men and men with women. Family hierarchies are also inverted. A father habituates himself to be like his child and fear his sons. And a son habituates himself to be like his father and to have no shame before or fear of his parents. In classrooms, as the teacher is frightened of the pupils and fawns on them, so the students make light of their teachers. Animals are regarded are regarded as equal to humans. The rich mingle freely with the poor in the streets and try to blend in. The foreigner is equal to the citizen. And it is when a democracy has ripened as fully as this, Plato argues, that a would-be tyrant will often seize his moment. Kind of chilling, isn't it? There's so much line by line that we see in our culture today. And Plato is making the point that this is actually the fruition of democracy over time as we become more discontent and disconnected with the democratic process on which it was started in the first place. Sobering. These are, these are notes when people write this thousands of years ago and it's as almost they are living today, like this could have been written by the New York Times or the USA Today. I mean, that, that could have been an excerpt that was written by some editorialist in a modern newspaper. When that happens, it should gather our attention that maybe our behavior is predictable. <laughs> that maybe Plato was predicting something. Maybe there was some type of Plato politics that we need to pay attention to and be ready for. Now, I'm not here making the point that I think that Joe Biden is this tyrant, or maybe even the Democratic Party. But, comma, <laughs> however, comma, we have to be careful about some of the ideology of that party and the presidency because it does line up a lot with what I just read. So that we're not creating an environment that is ripe for takeover. Now, I know there's many of my listeners that probably feel like we've already been taken over, that there have been a political movement and a political agenda to do just that. Now, I'm not here on this podcast saying that I believe that or have evidence of that, but I can s simply read you Plato and in my mind, without too much reservation, feel like, yep, that's us. <laughs> 
Yep. We could be, we could have ripened to that point. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? We read this and, and I have to feel, now I could be wrong about this, but I have to feel that nobody really wants that. Nobody wants teachers to be powerless and fawning over their children and to be afraid of them. Nobody wants the, the tail wagging the dog in families where the children are feared and fawned over. Nobody really wants that. That doesn't feel like that's balanced. Are we equal to animals? I don't think anybody really feels like that's true. Not that I have anything against animals. Do we see the foreigner as equal to citizens? Well, there's an argument, isn't there? It's what we're seeing. And so what is the answer? What is, what is the point? If, if, if there's something inside of us that say, none of us want violence in schools. None of us want, want kids running the show. No, none of us want that. So why is it happening? Why, why do we sit here and go, why? Is it possible that we actually look to politicians as the ones that are going to save us, that's going to change us, that if we could just elect the right people, that maybe they would be the ones that would turn things around for us? Well, history has shown, and, and we are living in a time where that has not proven to be the case. See, I would like to argue with you that, that politicians actually respond to people. Now, you may say, well, they don't seem to respond to anything that we say, but they actually do pay very close attention to polling and the way that the the populace feels. Why? Because they want to be reelected. And and I can talk about this in just a couple minutes. It seems that politicians, is, the minute they are elected, are actually planning their reelection, and they are positioning themselves just for that. That's what makes them politicians, is because they are actually politicking for your vote. And they care about the vote. Let me give you an example. And this is just in my lifetime, just even in my adult lifetime. We can walk, we can look at the sign in the times of the Clinton family. So let's look at the Clintons in respect to their stance on abortion. Now this, I'm not talking about hundreds of years here. I'm talking about 20, 25 years of Clintons in politics. Now we look at, we can go back to even President Clinton, President Bill Clinton, in his early days in Arkansas. Now, if you pinned him down, he probably would say that he was pro-choice at that point, but it often said that he operated in what was called soft rhetoric, meaning that I'm not going to talk about it as long as you don't talk about it. And in a deep South state, that was probably politically to his advantage. He said that I am not, and this is a quote, I am not pro-abortion. So that's the platform on which the political, the the Clinton political machine was built. I am not pro-abortion. And he vowed to support policies to make abortion, quote, rare. He agreed in states setting limits and having having autonomy and authority to control their own uh, views and policies on abortion. Does that surprise you at all about the Clintons? just 25 years ago. Let's talk about Hillary. See, her, her, his wife, Hillary, 
Um, well, going back to Bill, he was already pro-choice when he served as governor of Arkansas. In his 2004 memoir, he said that it is biologically self-evident that life starts at conception. This is Bill Clinton. Even so, he said, no one knows when biology turns into humanity. For the religious, when the soul enters the body. Let me go on a little five-minute rabbit trail because I think this is extremely sad when I was studying this. It says Bill sought the guidance of his then minister, Reverend W.O. Vaught, V-A-U-G-H-T, a conservative Baptist whose anti-abortion stances were well known. Vaught's opposition, however, had been shaken by the real-life trials of parishioners faced with difficult pregnancies. Challenged by Bill to offer a definitive answer, Vaught turned to the Bible. Based on his readings of scripture, he concluded that not until God breathes life into a body does personhood start. Human life then begins at birth with the first breath, he said. While abortion may be morally suspect, it does not qualify as murder. For Bill, Vaught's interpretation, which differs from his United Methodist Church's stance, settled the issue. How sad and tragic is that? And I'm sorry, Reverend W.O. Vaught. You are responsible for that. So Hillary, with her Methodist background, struggled. And she said at a Democratic forum that the, quote, potential for life begins at conception. And she described her struggle as, quote, as a Methodist to balance potential life with the concern of the life of others. Clinton's recent reference to an unborn person seems to indicate that the struggle continues. This was in 2016, less than 10 years ago. In her public comments, Clinton has been more ambivalent than her husband. She has noticed that the question of when human life begins is delicate and difficult. Echoing the United Methodist Church's position that the beginning of life is the God-given boundary of human existence. But then we've seen such a quick, rapid evolution over the last 8, 9, 10 years of the politician Hillary Clinton shifting the clintons the clintons crafted the phrase they want abortion to be legal safe and rare boy has that changed the politician hillary clinton now moves to new york different voting group different dynamic different demographic and then, historically, as we know, the shift, the radical shift, all the way up even to partial birth abortions and abortions right at the birth canal. It seems that Clinton had some personal reservations, but the article I read said this, quote, Clinton seems to have set aside her personal reservations about abortion in favor of, quote, the good, end quote. My friends, 
that is a bunch of baloney. <laughs> it is never about conviction with the Clintons. We can trace this back. I'm doing this very quickly. I did this in about three minutes. But we can trace this back. It's not about conviction. It's about election. See, politics, the political people, they are after votes. That's what they do. That's what makes them politicians. So guess what? 60% of New Yorkers instantly disfavor abortion and want abortion ended. Guess what? Hillary Clinton's convictions start to go back to her United Methodist roots again. <laughs> Politicians shift with the times and shift with the voters. You can't tell me that the Clintons are a family of conviction. I'm sorry. It has shifted in exactly where they've lived and exactly what their constituents believed is instantly and mysteriously what they believe as well. It's sad, but it's predictable. Politicians respond to voters, not voters to politicians. It's the, it's the, it's, it is, you may not believe me, but it is the, the, the belief of the people that the politicians will slip into and all of a sudden agree with. As long as it's 51%, mysteriously, that's what they believe as well. See, politicians are not the answer to Plato's problem. It's the hearts of the people. It's the democracy themselves. The we, the people, actually have a say in what happens. And if we believe that, then it's not the politicians who are the most important. It's the cultural reformers. It's the ones who speak to the people. It's the ones who change the hearts of the people. You have heard me talk about this, and if you have not heard my series entitled May the Force Be With You, I broke down the, the radical um, transformation of a culture uh, by the influence of William Wilberforce to overcome the slave trade in the United Kingdom. It was in the one of the most amazing in one generation change that a man was able to I believe, champion. And he was able to do it. And he was able to do it ultimately with the elite and the politicians who were actually making their pockets full of money through the African slave trade. And yet the hearts of the people changed to the point where the politicians felt like they had to change as well. They had to ride the wave of, of human thought, of human behavior, of human polling. It's about changing the hearts of the people is what William Wilberforce set out to do. And he did. You've heard this story many times. He brought the people to the slave ships. He showed them. He made them smell it. He showed what was happening. He, 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 sent, he sent reporters and people to Africa to actually watch it, to write it, to observe it, and to bring it back to the people so that they knew what was happening. And so many times I've, made, I've equated that to our current plight against the, 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 the savagery of abortion is I believe that people just don't talk about it, just like the Clintons. Let's just not talk about it. Let's just make it safe but rare. Well, why does it need to be rare? It needs to be rare because it's horrible. It's brutal. It's murder. That's why. <laughs> 
And so we need to change the hearts of the people. Martin Luther King was one of those reformers who stood up. And when there was a gathering of millions of people at the mall of Washington, D.C., guess what? It got the attention of the politicians and policy began to change. I believe that Dobson from Focus on the Family is one of those people. I believe that, especially around the time of George W. Bush, that he actually was so politically influential that, and he represented such a large voting block that there was actually policy that was that was shifted and geared toward the conservative Christian because of the influence that James Dobson had. They're political reformers. They injected themselves into the political conversation, into the political fray for the best of the people. We can extrapolate that so many times in the current times that we live. Why, why are they letting immigrants spill across our country, in, into our, across our borders, into our country when they're bringing drugs and, and, and they are illegal immigrants. What part of illegal do we not understand? Why would we allow that? We, it's being allowed by the Democratic Party because they just have acquired one million new voters. Every one of those illegal immigrants will ultimately be able to vote if the Democrats have their way. And now the Republicans will need one million more voters to change their opinion to counteract that. It's about votes. Women vote, babies do not. Having and adopting a woke ideology is getting pushed back against because people don't really like it. They don't want their children to be inundated with hate speech. But they're betting on the fact that woke ideology won't change the white vote, but will bring in black votes. It's about votes, my friends. Make no mistake about it, this whole college tuition farce of payback was nothing more than buying votes. They didn't care whether it passed. The Supreme Court is actually talking about it right now. It's probably not going to go through because it's not constitutional. They don't care. It was pandering and catering to college-aged voters, period. It's about voters. I'll spend 60 seconds on this. I would be a huge advocate for term limits. I would love to see the presidency just being one term. You say, no, that's crazy. That'll never happen. And it probably won't. But what would happen if a president was elected and had no option of re-election? Then his presidency would be about legacy rather than re-election. The second Joe Biden gets elected, he's thinking about his next term and what it would take to get re-elected and keep the Democrats in power. That's what it's all about. And they are going to do and manipulate um, policy in order to receive votes. Every politician does it. The Republicans do too. If we limit terms, then it becomes about legacy. What can I do in four years to make a difference, to set my stamp on history rather than just getting reelected? Hopefully that was less than 60 seconds. It's about hearts of people. The answer to Plato's, uh, Plato's prediction, his, 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 his warning to us is the hearts of the people, and it requires cultural reformers. Now, cultural reformers can be politicians like Wilberforce. They can also be pastors like Martin Luther King. They could be performers. They can be people of influence, leaders, anyone who can speak out, who can write, who can do podcasts, who can be heard, can be cultural reformers and can reverse 
what Plato was talking about. Plato might be right, and he might have been a, a very accurate predictor of human nature, but he doesn't have to be prophetic. I believe that we can actually heed the warning, that we the people can stand up and be just as loud. And if there's enough of us, once it gets to be 51%, guess what? Policies change as well. That's what we're after. Roe v. Wade was overturned and there was a void that was created. And, and I believe that the millennial generation that are coming up are becoming increasingly uncomfortable with abortion. And that is an opportunity for us to fill that void, uh, to change the dynamic of the polling. And as these young people actually become the voters and they move in, I believe that things can shift and will shift and will change. It's going to require people like me, people like you to speak out and to be the voice of democracy that actually brings change and to reverse the tide that Plato was talking about. We don't want to create an environment that a would-be tyrant will take hold of. Rather, we want to be so strong and influential that the politicians take heed of us. <laughs> yeah baby let's do it so with that inspiration let's go together now to set and shape the culture 